We're going to be back in Ecclesiastes this morning. We have been going through this book, a book which is uh, perhaps overlooked sometimes, but perhaps also forgotten in terms of its message. And for me, as I've been re-studying and re-examining and re-reading this book of Ecclesiastes, I have been uh, impacted all the more as I've uh, seen uh, how the Lord uses his word to speak to us where we are. For my, own, uh, for my own belief, I think Ecclesiastes is one of the most relevant books you could read uh, in 2020. Not just 2020, but any year for that matter. It describes life as we know it. Life as we are living it. The, the word that keeps popping up uh, throughout our study is that word vanity. Solomon has been identifying different ways this vain life is and is before us. That word vanity, of course, as we've noted, means frustration. There's this frustrating aspect to life as we live it, life as we see it. And Solomon is doing an examination of that in sort of a sermon form. He calls himself the preacher in verse 1 of chapter 1. And really, that's really what he's doing. He has this sort of 12-chapter sermon on describing this sort of frustrating life. This life under the sun, as the phrase is also repeated. And he does so in a way that sometimes is just flat out blunt honest. If you were remembering some of the words that Pastor Nathan read for our scripture this morning. It sounded bluntly honest. Almost jarringly honest. But such is why I I love the fact that Solomon is able to do that. He's not sort of giving a lecture. He's not sort of uh, writing even a letter to a church to enhance their sort of doctrine, so to speak. He is writing a sermon almost coming out of his own heart and soul. And it it is allowing him to speak with just this blunt honesty. Which is something that speaks to me. It's, I think, what makes Ecclesiastes able to speak to all of us in all times and in all walks of life. Here in chapter 4, Solomon moves to discuss, I think, a, a silent but nonetheless deadly sort of human problem that is pervasive. It's been pervasive from Solomon's day all the way to now. It's the problem of loneliness. I think in chapter 4, Solomon is examining this idea, this frustration of loneliness that I would say, yes, is indeed a, a pandemic. We often don't think about it that way. This idea that loneliness can be defeating and actually destructive, but actually feelings of loneliness have been linked to all manner of degenerative health problems and even suicide. If you are uh, around teenagers or young adults, they may not explicitly express that I'm feeling lonely. But, and in fact, the data proves otherwise. And in fact, in 2018, Cigna actually did a survey of 20,000 United States adults. And actually nearly half of them, 46% of them, came back and said that they feel lonely. And in fact, the largest demographic of that survey were Generation Z, so to speak, 18 to 22-year-olds, the loneliest generation. And in fact, no matter where they were, they were feeling this isolation. They were feeling this being left out of meaningful connection and relationship. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) 
That the most connected generation is actually the least connected. The most lonely. We have all of these apps and digital ways in order to connect. We are still lonely. We are still isolated. These stats, by the way, if you do the research, have gone up astronomically during this recent pandemic we've been enduring. We are actually more lonely than ever nowadays. What is driving this? What is, what is leading? What is causing this feeling of being alone where there's no one to listen to us? As Solomon says in verse 1, there is no comforter, no one to come around us and be with us in that moment. Some will say that because of our political divides, that's what's making us lonely. Some say our, our cultural beliefs, our generational gaps. Some would say other things. Solomon, actually, though, in chapter 4, I think he identifies three sources of man's loneliness. Sources that I don't think we often think about, but actually I think they are sources that are deep within our souls. And such is why I want to go through them this morning. Because I also think, in examining this loneliness, he also pinpoints its only solution. So let's go through it. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 4, let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. Here I think we see the loneliness of oppression. Notice he says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power. But they had no comforter. Here, Solomon and here these verses in verses 2 and 3 He examines a little more closely this sort of injustice, this oppression that he sees in life under the sun. This is a topic that he had touched on just briefly in chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. Where he was talking about how injustice and corruption sits in the place where righteousness should. But he returns to this idea here and actually broadens his scope, broadens his sort of identification of oppression. And not in just terms of of sort of the court system, so to speak. There's not just oppression coming from that plane, that sphere. Actually, as he says here, all the oppressions done under the sun. He sees it as something that happens all around us. He articulates this. Oppression as being sort of the condition of mankind. He sees it. That we are made to endure rulers and leaders, yes, who exploit their position for the, their own selfish gain, for their own selfish ambition. And he sees mankind here crushed by these other men. As he says here, that's what that word uh, oppression means. It means to crush To violate others in order to achieve your own aspirations. He sees it. He identifies it. He observes that this is happening all over the place. Under the sun. You see he's identifying something I think is very pervasive. That it's not just relegated to leaders. To authorities so to speak. To oppress others. We do it all the time. We oppress others when ourselves become the masters, when ourselves become the rulers and the leaders, when we put our needs and wants and desires above others at their expense. You see, oppression always comes from self-absorption. 
From being so consumed by ourselves that no one else really matters. This is what Solomon is talking about. He is seeing this oppression that happens as the reality of life under the sun. And it happens because sin exists. This oppression that he identifies, this injustice that he sees, it exists because sin exists. You go back to the Reformation. The reformers that were, ha- that were active during the 1500s, they defined sin in a very interesting way. They defined it, uh, there's a Latin phrase for it, but they defined it as man turned in on himself. The Latin phrase is incurvatus in se, which literally means navel gazing. Sin was man looking at himself. So consumed with what he needed, with what he wanted, with what his goals were, with what his desires were, that it didn't matter what anything else was happening around him. He was turned in on himself. So you can see... That oppression is the natural byproduct of man being consumed with his own desires and needs and wants. Man consumed with his own life at the expense of others. It's the ultimate form of exalting me above others. Me and my wants above anyone else's. And you can see Solomon's heart. As he's talking and he's going to examine loneliness, there is nothing more lonely than pretending that your needs are more important than others. And that theirs actually, they don't even matter. There's nothing more lonely than that. Living as if you only matter is a lonely way to live. Actually results in tears. As Solomon says, it results in oppression. It results in aggravates loneliness. He expresses two times there in verse 1. That those who are oppressed, those who are the fruit of your oppression, they have no comforter. No one to come around them. No one to console them or have compassion on them or relieve them in their anguish. No solace. And this leaves us in a troubling spot. Because like Solomon, we can observe the world, look at the headlines, look at the news, so to speak. And we can see that our lives are filled with people who are oppressed. People who are forgotten, who are feeling the weight of injustice. And here Solomon is describing something that he is powerless to stop. He cannot thwart all of man's uh, turning in on himself. He can't stop this corruption from exceeding and growing and getting stronger. And you see, we have to make the same sort of conclusion. That as long as we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, man will always be putting his needs above others. This is the definition of sin as we saw. It's the definition of life as we have it. Because sin exists. Man is turned in on himself. And nothing is more defeating than realizing that we, in and of ourselves, are powerless to stop that. We cannot rid this world of sin. We cannot rid this world of oppression. Solomon finds that frustrating. (laughs) 
He finds that even lonelier too. So it's just why he says in verses 2 and 3, I praise the dead which are, excuse me, the dead, excuse me, I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. He's saying that it's actually better. It's better to be unborn than to be born into this life and witness, and not just witness, but to endure all the things that oppress us under the sun. It's a jarring remark. One that should make our eyes open. He's saying here that some have concluded that to escape this world of corruption, this world of evil, we have to escape life altogether. But such is not our solution. Such is not our hope. If your hopes are only linked to things under the sun. Things that are here in this life. Yes we will probably think the same way. But Solomon here is identifying something. And leading to something. Hinting at yes what is our true hope. Which is this. That we who are oppressed. We who feel afflicted and affected and assaulted by all the sin and the suffering that happens in this world. We, yes, we are not to look at things under the sun. But we are to look at things which are above. As Paul writes in Colossians 3.1. The things which are above this life under the sun. Yes, to that man of sorrows who was oppressed in our place. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. (laughs) But such is the answer to the loneliness of oppression. To look at one who is oppressed in our stead. There's more I want to say about that. But let's move on. Because not only do we have the loneliness of oppression. We have in verses 4 through 6. The loneliness of envy. Look at what he says. And again I considered all travail. And every right work. That for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool. Foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands. With full with travail and vexation of spirit. Here is another source that Solomon sees. That makes man lonely. Envy of his brother. Of his neighbor. He makes this interesting uh, remark here in verse 4. That he, as he was looking at all of the, the travail. Actually the, the labor, the work, the skills. The things that man does. What drives it all? What's the motivating factor for all of man's work? It's, it's not honesty as he says here. It's envy. <laughs> the only thing that's driving the economy and the business of this life. Is it's uh, trying to be uh, better than the competition. It's a natural rule of business. Be better than your competitor. He's saying that this not only drives business. This drives every man's work. Regardless of what sphere of life it is. We are driven by competition. Driven by envy. Driven by rivalry. The bottom line. Is the only thing that matters. What brings me profit. Not just what brings me profit. What brings me more profit than my rival. That's jealousy. That's envy. 
Saying this drives man's heart. Mankind here is driven by this uh, natural inclination to want to be better than all else. Everyone else around him. It's pride. Solomon sees this as something that drives actually loneliness. What's more lonely than only being driven to beat out someone else? It just actually reveals and exposes what we don't have. I want that. For this is a man envied of his neighbor. But this also, as he says there, is vanity and vexation of spirit. Envy, he says here, is useless. It's useless to drive yourself to want what someone else has. Because there will be always someone above you. The competitor is never actually finds uh, the, the finish line. The one who is driven by envy to beat everyone else will always have someone that he has to beat or compete with or rival against. There will always be someone above you. And Solomon sees this as he says here, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. It's foolish to use envy to drive your life. It will actually just cause you to fold your arms and just disgust. And actually it just brings about your own ruin. As he says there. It eateth your own flesh. It consumes you. It puts you in the loneliest spot of all. One of the loneliest places to be. Is to think that you are at the center of all of life's gifts. All of life's blessings. You see someone get promoted. And you think that should have been mine. You see someone have success. And you think that should have been me. When you see someone get something that you wanted. And you say that is what I deserve. See how lonely that puts you. When you are in the center of all of life's blessings. You see, to be envious of someone else's work or their status or their life, it is to be, as he says here, it is to eat your own flesh. It is to be devoured by comparison or by competition. It never leads to flourishing. It never leads to fulfillment. It leads, actually, as he says, to more travail and vexation of spirit. It leads more and more to frustration than anything else. You know what does lead to flourishing? As he says there in verse 6. Better is in handful with quietness. Being mindful of what God has given to you. Not being envious of what someone else has. Being mindful and quiet with what you have. Even if it's just one handful. And he says there. It's, that's better than both the hands that are filled, clenched with travail and vexation of spirit. Both hands trying to get what is not yours. Trying to be envious of someone else's position. It's better to be quiet. Better to be still. Better to be mindful and tend to that which God has given you. Than to be envious of all that you see around you. Because envy puts you in a lonely spot. Lastly, I want to move on to verse 7 through 16. We have the loneliness of oppression, the loneliness of envy. But notice here in verses 7 through the end of the chapter, we have here the loneliness of more. 
Notice what he says there. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither no end, or excuse me, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. He makes this Solomon, he steps back and he, and he looks again, sort of this one who is so driven by envy and passion and success. He sees this one. There is one alone, he says. And what is he driven by? He's driven by this pursuit of more. I just need more. I need more satisfaction. I need more success. I need more riches. I need more profit. I need more prestige. Notice he says, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. His pursuit is, yes, a pursuit of wind because it never comes. It never actually leaves him satisfied. He is never filled if so long as he's pursuing this, uh, this more that is out there. It leaves you, as he says in verse 8, very lonely. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. There is no companion, no one around him. I think Solomon has in mind a man who is, yes, the, the man as we hear oftentimes who is, quote, married to his work. He's identifying the man who, who puts all of his labors into his job. And he may have a family, he may have a child and brother, but they come second to his pursuit of more. More prestige, more power. There is no end to that pursuit. As he says there, there is no end of all his labor. What does this way of life get you? Solomon says nothing. This leaves you with nothing. Nothing that lasts. He says there, this is also vanity and a sore travail. It actually makes you more lonely. Striving after success under the sun is a very fruitless endeavor. Striving for this more, the more that we can attain and gain and acquire for ourselves, it leaves you lonely. Why? Because there will never be a time when you ever have enough. There's that old, there's that old anecdote regarding uh, one of the earliest, earliest um, um, uh, tycoons, J.D. Rockefeller, you may are familiar with this story, where a reporter came up to him and asked him, how much money is enough money? Just a little bit more. This would be a man who would rival ours in our day and age in terms of net worth, even though he was very early on in the steel and oil businesses. And yet, <laughs> how much is enough? Just a little bit more. There, there was a movie a couple of years ago that told the sort of half-truth but also half-fictional tale of the start of Facebook. It's called The Social Network. And there's one point in the story, I, I don't think this conversation happened. It may have happened, but I don't know. Um, where one of these sort of guys who is helping this, this, this website get off the ground, he says, a million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. <laughs> And I think that speaks so much of the human heart. That's not, it's not just that. I want more. Just a little bit more. 
Just a little bit more of that in my life. And you see Solomon here making the same remark. That the man who was driven by more, there's no end to his labor. And he has no one to share it with. It leaves him lonely. Notice verse 13. Notice he says, better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun, and the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Here Solomon, he leans into this idea of a man sort of coming at the end of his life. And he has no one with which to share in all that he has labored for. This man has pursued this kingdom, this fame, this renown. And yet... All of man's acclaim and applause, their accolades that you can gain, they're very fickle foundations to rest your life on. Because notice what he says in verse 16, there's no end of all the people. There will be people after you just as there were those who came before you. There is no stopping that. And they, the people who come after you, as he says here, they shall not rejoice in him. I, I get this picture In these verses, this image of a a wearied, decrepit king who has spent his life, as he says there in verse 13, ignoring admonishment, ignoring wise counsel, being pursued only, uh, being uh, driven only by this pursuit of more. He comes to the end of his life. There's no one around him. He's driven everyone else away and he is lonely. Better in that instance is it to be poor, as he says there. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king. (laughs) Better is it to have little and have company. To have family than have abundance and have no one with which to share it. Which is what leads him to verse 9. Down through verse 12. To articulate that very explicitly. As he says in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Our lives, so long as they are filled with this disease of more, so to speak. They will never be quiet. They will never be filled. They will always be alone. Because a life that is pursuing more, just more stuff, more accolades, more success, it is exhausting. Better, as Solomon says here. Better is it to live life with community, with family, with companionship. This is a gift from God. The church family that we have here this morning is a gift from God. It is something that he has made us for. He has made us to spend life with family. 
And we're a church family. And just like your immediate family, we'll have disagreements. <laughs> we'll have arguments. But you know what keeps us together? Jesus Christ and his blood. This is what keeps any church family healthy and united and successful and driving forward to the end goal. Which is not the success of this church. It's the actual invasion of God's kingdom into this world. God has given us that as a gift. Which I think brings us to the wonderful solution that God has here in this chapter. To all of our loneliness. Each day, you might wake up and open Facebook. Hopefully that's not the first thing that you do. If it is, it's okay. But I would challenge you not to make it that. <laughs> because you'll scroll through your news feed and find a kajillion different things to distress you. To make you feel as if you are being oppressed and crushed and violated. It might feel as if there's no comfort to be had. As you see all of the... Just craziness happening all around us. But I think that's exactly why the gospel is necessary. You want to know how Ecclesiastes 4 answers the problem to all of our loneliness? What does the gospel tell us about? The gospel tells us about Jesus who came to suffer all of the world's oppressions. As it says there in Isaiah 53, he took on all of that iniquities and all of that injustice for our sin. He took all of that in our stead. But more than this, I want you to go to John chapter 14. There is, when I was studying this the last several weeks, I could not get away from this chapter. John chapter 14. Look at verse 15. John 14, 15 says this. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray with the Father. And he shall give you another comforter. That he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him. But ye know him. For he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. Here, Jesus is hinting at the fact that when he ascends, he will not leave us alone. Actually, he will leave us with a comforter. He will leave us with his spirit. Jump down to verse 26. He says the same thing. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. He repeats the same sort of sentiment in verse 26 of chapter 15 and verse 7 of chapter 16. A comforter will come in my place. One who consoles. One who is the literal meaning of that word. Who advocates for us. That's what that word means, comforter. One who pleads another's cause in their stead. One who stands by us. How does this connect to Ecclesiastes 4? Well, as you might know, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There's some parts of it that are written in Aramaic, but for the most part, it was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek, Greek equivalent of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. 
There's an early Greek translation of all of these Hebrew texts is used very often when we're translating the scriptures. In John 14, 15, and 16. The word for comforter there is a Greek word called parakletos. And wouldn't you know it? That the same word in John 14, 15, and 16 is the word that is used in the Septuagint of Ecclesiastes 4. When it's talking about the absence of comfort. That we who feel oppressed feel as if we have no comforter. We have no advocate, no parakletos to come around us and speak for us. And I cannot help. Now, I cannot help but see the wonderful connection between Jesus' words and the words of Solomon. About this wonderful hope that you and I have. That the solution to all of our comfort and or discomfort here under the sun, all of the oppression that we feel and all of the loneliness is one who is a comforter. One who comes to our side. One who answers to the fullest all of the loneliness that we have and we feel. You know what God's answer to our frustrating feelings of loneliness? It is to leave us with himself. That the spirit, as he says, is in you and is with you. As he says in Matthew 28, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Why? Because he has left his comforter with us. Left this one who consoles us when no one else will. Leaves this one who speaks on our behalf. One who intercedes ever and always for us. You see here folks. We are not left with no comforter. We are left with the true and the only and the divine comforter that comes from God. And this one assures us. That we are not alone. That there is one who never leaves us, never forsakes us, never departs from us. That there is one who uh, feels all of the fullness of our oppression even more than we could ever feel. That there is one who is oppressed just like we are. One who is crushed for all of our injustices. Who was betrayed and left alone by those he loved dearest. This one tells us that we can let go of our envy because there is one who has given us his enoughness. The spirit of God. He tells us, he speaks to us and speaks for us to remind us that all of our feelings of loneliness can drift away because he is in us and with us and he is never forsaking us. His comfort never ceases. His intercession on our behalf never comes to an end. There is a measurable comfort in that. The solution to all our feelings of loneliness. Whether it be coming from a place of feeling oppressed. Feeling uh, that we are envious of someone else. uh, That we have to get something more. It comes From the comforter. Who speaks into all of those needs. It comes from the power of Jesus Christ the Savior. Who leaves us with his spirit. Therefore there's no escaping that presence. You this morning. 
If you know Jesus. You have a true and better comforter this morning. Who can alleviate all of your feelings of frustration or oppression or loneliness or envy or just desire of more. You have the spirit of the Lord with you and in you. How often do we think about that? If you don't know Jesus this morning, you too might feel as if all of this stuff that we see in this life makes it not worth living. Let me tell you this morning, there is one who can comfort that rage in your soul. Who can comfort that envy that you feel in your heart. One who can come alongside you and remind you and let you know that beyond anything else in this life under the sun, there is one who never departs. One who will never leave you alone. And his name is Jesus. Jesus the Christ. The one who came to be like as we are, yet without sin. So that he can make all of us his brothers and sisters in salvation. This is the comfort that God gives. It's the only comfort that lasts. Let us pray.